Hello and welcome to another episode of Is This Just Fantasy? A fantasy book club hosted by me, Geordie Bailey. And me, Duncan Nickel. Welcome back, Duncan. Another exciting episode this week. We are going to wrap up the Strange the Dreamer duology. Ah, oh, such an exciting kind of book to pick up from. For those who don't know, last episode we covered Strange the Dreamer, the first in the duology. And, and I, I would it. recommend popping back and giving it a listen because we are going to jump straight into the book takes up immediately from where the last one left off. So uh, it's not going to make a great deal of sense to you if um, if you jump in here. Absolutely. There will be full spoilers for Strange the Dreamer um, in this episode. I just don't think we can discuss Muse of Nightmares in any way without mm. fully enclosing sort of where Strange the Dreamer kind of left off. Yeah. So jump back to the previous episode, Strange the Dreamer. I think it's a really good one. I've listened to it a couple of times while editing to it. Um, but now let's crack on to Muse of Nightmares. So, Dunk, you had a, a strong and positive reaction to Strange the Dreamer. You really liked uh, the romance in it, right? That was what really appealed to you. It's kind of what drew me in. It's what made me kind of think, oh, this is... This is slightly above. It's what elevated. Like, everything else was good, but that mm-hmm. was the plot, the kind of subplot that just brought it up that tier, just escalated it in my mind. I went, yeah, that was a lovely mm-hmm. read. And the thing about Muse of Nightmares, which I find really interesting, and this is the main thing I took away from it, reading it through this time, is that it departs from a lot of just sequels in general, in that since the massive, most important parts of the love story were taken care of in the first part. The characters are in love with one another, uh, and in one way or another, they are at last together. And they get to spend the entire novel together, being in love. Um, Which is not very common for for, uh, romance stories, or romance fantasy stories. I can't speak, I can't say I've read that many kind of romance fantasy stories, but it certainly was Mm -hmm. surprising, because in terms of sheer sort of format, it it was very different. The previous Mm -hmm. book had a very nicely defined kind of format between the two plots, um, divided by, in text, by the sort of dream world and real world that the characters Mm -hmm. inhabit. This book sort of did away with that. Um, yeah, it's, when uh, I say, when I think of fantasy sequels, uh, which strong elements of romance, I'm thinking about stuff like the Ember and the Ashes series, or Twilight, where the characters are falling in love in the first book, but then in the second book, to create romantic drama, they have to immediately be separated. Um, which I think is always a bit disappointing, because you spend a whole book really excited about two people getting together, you're really excited to see the relationship drama, and then you are denied it. You know, you're said, well, there won't be any drama, there won't be any excitement if they're together. So to do things like create love triangles and and extend the romance, they have to be separated. I think it's this kind of misconception that there isn't any drama once two Mm. people are together. And even if they're, Mm. like, happy or in love, like... There is still trials and tribulations, and that's mm-hmm. what this bit really dies into. You know, these two people, the lead couple, Laszlo and Sarai, they're together, mm-hmm. they love each other, that's settled, and that's not really yeah. ever questioned. That's What's true. brought into the question is, 
what's going to come up against them and how do they take on these new challenges and how can they stay together which is the actual like threat that's facing them not just that they'll be separated but that Sarai will be deliberately taken away from Laszlo as a punishment oh I feel like we need to just kind of dive into the sort of the first Mm -hmm. bits of the plot now so if you don't mind I'll uh, recap where we left off the wonderful climax the kind of metaphorical waterfall that you kind of go over at the Mm -hmm. very end of Strange the Dreamer is we're left off all the characters are gathered on the citadel this floating um statue above the city of weep and lasso arrives his love so i has sadly recently fallen to her death but mm. in a way she's gone better she's been brought back as a ghost by one of her i'm doing little air quotes friends uh mm. minya who's captured her soul and allowed her to stay on this plane. But mm-hmm. in doing so, right. Minya has absolute power on whether or not Sarai stays or mm-hmm. drifts off and goes into the next life. Exactly. And so Laszlo's left with quite the hold on him. He finally can be with the woman he loves, but mm-hmm. only if he plays to Minya's tune. And Minya... Yep. And Minya has vengeance on her mind. She wants to use Laszlo's power to bring suffering to the people of Weep. So, of course... With a cliffhanger like that, we are nowhere near the action for chapter one. No, what? And one interesting kind of point: when I first opened this book, you made a point of asking me, like Duncan, I think you should like note down your first thoughts when you mm-hmm. read chapter one. I did, I did, I did, because it is so far removed. It's completely new characters in a new setting, mm-hmm. the location we haven't heard of before, the characters we haven't heard of before. Yeah. And Could you introduce us to them, Dunk? Absolutely. So we've got. Cora and Nova, or, well, actually, yeah, Cora and Nova, it sometimes gets written as sort of one phrase because they are twins and they're so mm-hmm. commonly together that it's like one name to them. They it's just Cora like Mama Papa in Fasting and Feasting. You know, they become a single unit with one name. And these two young women are living a tough life. They're in this sort of mm-hmm. um, far reaches of the north, icy settlement, inching out of living on the very edge. But yeah. they have a dream that one day these beings will come, uh, these gods-like beings, these Meserin, I'm going to go for pronunciation, um, and that these will come and they will select them. They select every sort of 15, 20 years, they come and they find out the people with magical gifts and they take them away to live a wonderful life in the heart of a glorious empire. And none of these plot points are at all really mentioned in the previous book. Not and you're really. left there going, okay, are we in the same timeline? Are we in the same world? And mm-hmm. I'm going to say this, first reading this, my guess was that, oh, we're possibly in like a different, we're in a different world. This is somewhere far away. Um, mm-hmm. I was like, well, it might be, you know, it's just like on the other side of the planet, you know, because it's like all the continents, you know, and I say, maybe this is what, it, this is, maybe this is what it's like, like on the far side of the planet, there's like a lost continent or some aspect like like this is where the gods come from and this is the plot Mm -hmm. that's going to explore that and i wasn't wrong in that sense Mm -hmm. um but it does go in a few ways that i wasn't expecting in a few ways that i actually have a little bit of criticism about geordie oh i know okay Uh, interesting i want to gather before we really get into the heavy spoilers for music nightmares my kind of overall thoughts are Mm. i like this book but i don't think it's as good as strange the dreamer was 
That's, I think, probably a fair criticism, but I don't really think it has to do with the book itself. Okay, so my reading of it this time through is that I do actually agree. I think it's not as good as Strange the Dreamer. Part of that is just that it is trying for something incredibly different. This book is a lot more exciting. This book is sort of a lot more, I don't want to say action-packed, but there's, um, but there's, it's a bit more like a thriller. There's a lot more tension in scene by scene. It, 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 it's much more about actions all taking place in just a couple of days, um, I... as opposed to month-long journeys or week-spanning montages of people building airships and stuff. If I'm not mistaken, this whole book takes place within, for the main characters, Laszlo and Sarai, it's a 24-hour period. No. No? You're, you're wrong. Okay. It takes place over several days. They go to sleep several times. I actually think it takes, a, in terms of how long it would take things to unfold, I actually think it takes, like, two days longer than things really should have taken. Because Lazla goes up to the Citadel, and he stays up there for a while without telling Errol Fane what, what is happening. It takes him several days to come down and be like, hey, everything is fine, by the way. Anyway, uh... I've, I've jumped the gun yeah, and saying yeah. that things are fine because things are not fine. Things are not fine. I really like how you explain this book is more about the tension, a bit more about the action because I sort of was trying to explain this to a friend, you know, how it compared. I went, if the first book is like this kind of gentle meander yes. down the river, the ending yes. of the first book is going over the waterfall and then mm-hmm. this book is the rapids. Things yes. are a lot more tense and it works in the sense that, you're right, it is a bit more kind of action-packed. Mm-hmm. But unlike the first, you don't get quite as many moments of that kind of tranquility. Those kind of loving moments between Lazarus and Sarai—they're in there, but they're a lot shorter. I feel they're quite a bit more subdued relative I, to the I'll, I'll disagree with you there on. as well. But um, I think we should move on through and and wrap up our first first section on Nova and Cora because um, because we leave them quite quickly. We're with them for one chapter. And then, they're not heard of for some time. And Nora and... Nora and Nova... Nova and Cora... See, uh, it actually makes a lot of sense to spoonerize their names since they're so interconnected. That wasn't a mistake. That was, you know, that was a metaphor. <laughs> uh, they sort of become a framing device for the story. At the intersection of each part of the story, we jump back in and we see a little bit more of how their story intersects with the story of Laszlo and Sarai. But when we rejoin Sarai and Laszlo, we have this Mexican standoff. M- M- Minya, and Minya really is, I think, the star of this book. I think she's the best character in it, by far. I'm going to agree with you. And I'm, I'm pulling a small face, because I'm, I'm really thinking hard, but... I do think she is the start. Unlike Lassa and Sarai, who I feel in many respects have their character arcs kind mm-hmm. of culminate at the end of the first book, this is Minya's story. This is the story of her uh, sort of growth as a character. Yeah. I'll definitely agree with Laszlo there. I don't think Laszlo has a lot to learn in this story. And I think that's reflected in his role when it comes to the end of the story and how the the mantle of hero, you might say, falls on Sarai's shoulders as opposed to his. Again, we're getting ahead of ourselves. 
Minya has the power to control ghosts. That's her power. She hoards them. She has an entire army of ghosts ready uh, to slaughter the people of Weep if she ever gets the chance of revenge. And now, Laszlo provides the perfect opportunity. Laszlo, it seems, is the child of Scaphus, the leader of the gods, and has inherited his power, the power to control Mizarthium. So Laszlo has the solution to all their problems. He can pick up the citadel and make it leave weep. He can, he has, uh, he's the most powerful character in the entire story now. He can just, just control an indestructible metal. But Minya has Sarai and she can just let her go. She can just make her soul dissipate and fade away into nothingness, which means she controls Laszlo. And the main conflict on the first half of this story is this is this standoff. Because Sarai, because Laszlo can solve all their problems, but Minya doesn't want her problems solved. She doesn't want to leave. She wants to get back at them. What's your kind of opinion then on how Laszlo approaches this standoff? Because he's not he tries to be firm. Yeah. But Laszlo is very much just sitting there going, well, I won't let Sarai go. That's out of the question. Yeah. But at the same time, he's like, yeah, but I, I can't do the evil. I can't let the army of ghosts down to the innocent people. Mm-hmm. And I don't feel like Laszlo really, he seems to just be buying for time. He's never really comes like, has an idea. He's like, okay, if I just keep playing for time, hopefully something will happen. Yeah, I, 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 I do agree with that. But I also don't think like, it's not really very the great drama of the book and what you're left with at the end of the first one. The reason why it was so agonizing to wait six months for this next book to come out is I'm like, how are you going to negotiate with Minya? She's so single-minded. She's so ruthless that Laszlo doesn't stand a chance. Laszlo is a nice is a nice boy. He he can't go toe to toe with Minya's cruelty. He, the only threat Laszlo has is, if you let go of Minya, I'll kill you. But it's not very convincing when it comes from Laszlo. Well, I actually think it's really nice for, for the character. It's nice that Laszlo is like, he does do that for because he is that passionate. He, you know, he's like, oh, I can't. Yeah, it's the only thing he can think of. Mm-hmm. But in his heart, he knows he's not a killer. You know, he's that's not who he is. Mm-hmm. And that's why he kind of has no hold and why he's, you know, he's trying to apply diplomacy here. Mm-hmm. And even as a reader, you're like, I don't think there's anything you've got to offer, mate. Mm. Uh, and, you know, it only gets more emotionally confusing for Laszlo when he discovers that, uh, that this strange little girl uh, is his sister. Oh, do you know what? I'd almost half kind of let that slide in my own head. But you're right. It is discovered that they're mm-hmm. both uh, children of uh, Scapis. And so he's trying to, you're right, he's trying to deal with her. And it's like, this is the closest to family, like genetic family that he sort of has. Mm-hmm. What? Yep. Which is another thing this this book does especially well. Even better than it did in, in part one, and it did it great there, is that it refuses to let it be a simple case of good guys and bad guys. Minya wants to do something truly evil. But everyone in the story is trying to have sympathy for her. Even some of the people who she explicitly wants revenge on are like, 
look, I get it. I understand, and I empathize. Obviously, we're not going to let you do this, but I understand your humanity. I refuse to just turn you in my head into a monster. But the first standoff is drawn to a close by an unexpected source. That being a character who we almost did not mention at all in the first episode. Because although she's quite present in the story, she's not an important character in most of the scenes she's in. And that is Greater Ellen. Duncan, why do you think Greater Ellen didn't come up in our first episode at all? When she's quite important to this one. I think it's because although she is present and she's a huge factor... So Greater Ellen is the caregiver to mm-hmm. the um, Godspawn, the children of the gods that are up in the Citadel. And she's still there. She gives out monthly advice. You know, she makes them food. But mm-hmm. she doesn't actually... And she's a ghost. And she's a ghost. So right? she's, part, she's under Minus control. That is quite an important thing to bear in mind. She doesn't actually drive the narrative. She doesn't take action. She is there mm-hmm. to be the sagely advice. When yep. the Godspawn are confused... They can go to Greater Ellen, she gives out the motherly advice, but she mm-hmm. herself doesn't particularly do anything, which exactly. is fine. And I think that is something that's quite important. I almost thought of Greater Ellen, and Lesser Ellen, who is another character, also called Ellen. Uh, it's very sweet that they're both called Ellen. Um, it's it's very... Um, I was sort of more, saw them more as a plot device than anything. I thought of Lainey Taylor at her keyboard going, typing things out, saying, okay, so I have these gods born, I've been living up there since they're children, but then what's going to be going on? Are they, do they not know how to read? Who's been cooking for them? Like, Minya was cooking for everyone when she was, like, six years old? Okay, we're going to need Minya to have summoned this one character who can look after them. And then I imagined her developing the character of Greater Ellen and giving her greater depth. But it turns out I could not have been more wrong. The Ellens are actually really important to the story they are they're huge important this and this is why i'd be very interested to know how much of muse of nightmares was in lanny taylor's head when she finished off strength the dreamer mm, because yeah. i would love to go back and reread strength the dreamer with some of the mm. information revealed in muse of nightmares it's and it becomes very rereadable duncan i can promise you that so geordie there's a real question i want to get at for you and when we see um, Laszlo in his position, uh, talking to Minya, did you, when reading this, at any point think, maybe Laszlo should just let Sarai go? <laughs> I know that sounds awful. No, Duncan, I didn't think well, that. <laughs> I know that sounds horrific because, you know, that's yeah. what we're invested. We're invested in the love of his life. He's, you know, finally got with her. But mm-hmm. when the risk is losing this one woman that he loves versus the hundreds of, and I'm going to call them innocents, down in Weep. Like, well, you know, the the true hero here, you know, he would would let Sarai go and then be like, nope, that's it. You no longer have a hold on me. The innocents are safe. Yeah, there's a, that's certainly a utilitarian hero. And I think there would be a really good story where, a very angsty story in there where, you know, it's about uh, our hero, uh, learning to face the inevitable and learning to let go. Um, if the moral of a story were some things cannot be um, and we have to live with reality, um, which is not an uncompelling or 
uh, wrong moral to take away from a story, um, then that would be a perfectly acceptable conclusion. It'd be a lot shorter, but um, it would, uh, but it could still be okay. very compelling. Let me phrase that. Did but you ever this feel is, like that was uh, the direction this story was going in? No. Because I definitely had moments where I thought, oh, maybe that's what we're building up to. You know, she's a ghost. Mm-hmm. Maybe this is a story of Laszlo realising, you know, he can't have it all. Mm-hmm. He can't be the morally righteous in every situation. Yeah. There are some things he, some people he can't save or um, there, situations he can't peacefully get out of. There, a similar idea crossed my mind at another point of drama in the story, but I never really believed that that was a story that was happening here. I sort of identified this as, this is a story about how people who dream just once in a while can have it all. People with grand or impossible ambitions, sometimes those dreams come true. It is, after all, called Strange the Dreamer. So you know maybe I've just been reading mm. too dark and miserable fiction then. Because <laughs> that genuinely... Never, and I'm not saying I'm upset that this isn't the case. Mm-hmm. But when I read this, I genuinely, that didn't cross my mind that we would could hope for a truly kind of happy ending. I'm a big sucker for heroes who kind of make selfish choices, like, um, or bad choices. Uh, you know, when people, when Infinity War came out, um, people were super mad at Star-Lord for getting so mad at Thanos that he accidentally woke him up. But to me, I was in the cinema and I remember thinking like, yeah, that's what I do. I, I, if I found out a woman I love was dead because of someone, I'd be... I would not be acting rationally. Like, um, I'd be completely out of my mind. Like, um, that's the most human thing that character's done. Back to Greater Ellen and Minya. Uh, there's a strange moment where Greater Ellen manages to talk Minya down in a way that no one else can. And it's this strange moment, which even Laszlo comments on, where Greater Ellen is able to make Minya act like the child she resembles. Minya has been stunted by some... by something. We've I always understood it in the first book to be like, some aspect of her trauma has left her so rooted in the past that she literally cannot grow. That is something that is really important to the story and is unpacked, I think, masterfully in this story. Um, but by, by, by Great Ellen becoming this maternal figure to Minya... She's able to curb her her violent instincts. And Minya takes a break, basically. She's like, I'm tired. I'm going to sleep on it. You do whatever you want to do. Wait, this conversation isn't done. And that gives us this short reprieve to have a lot of really fun and interesting scenes where Laszlo gets to meet the other godspawn and spend time with Sarai. I think it's a really nice characterization moment for those other godspawn. Mm-hmm. Um Feral, Ruby, and Sparrow. The other characters that lived up there with Sarai. Yeah. They get to then exhibit this nice, kind of like childlike wonder mm-hmm. as Laszlo goes around and they get to re-explore their yeah. Citadel home because mm-hmm. Laszlo, with his powers, can open doors they could never get in before. That's right. And you get this lovely sort of take through where they kind of guide Laszlo mm-hmm. through their sort of childhood and sort of saying, you know, well, we always imagined, we used to play here, we used to think, what's behind that door? What mm-hmm. are the chances? Um, there's a one. There's a scene in this though which I loved and I laughed. Yep. But it's clearly quite dark 
Okay. <laughs> into the pantry. Yes, 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 yes. Go ahead. There's this great scene where they're like, they're in the kitchen. They're like, oh, we always figured there must be other food stores about. And then Ruby gets like, oh my God, maybe there's sugar just hidden in a locked cupboard we can never access. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Opens the door and they find the skeletal remains of a maid they got stuck in the pantry when That's the right. gods died mm-hmm. and all of the magical doors sealed them or the ones that were already closed mm-hmm. sealed forever and it's this dark sort of reminder of like you know when you know when the gods were overthrown you know mm-hmm. innocent lives were lost yep. in that conflict mm-hmm. you know innocent humans who were just being forced into slavery they died and they died horrible deaths mm-hmm. you know, this one was sealed alive in this pantry and all ruby can think about is that i, I don't have the exact quote but she, she basically goes that greedy person yeah she ate all the sugar she ate all sugar she going, it's so good i love it i love ruby's in this book so much uh ruby was already like rereading these books i i love all the scenes of ruby in them she's so fun and 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 weird she's the id of the group you know she does what she wants she's led by her passions um and i and i i find her so charming and fun i do too i love the fact that despite all the grand things that are happening mm-hmm. i think it's incredibly kind of this i'm gonna call it human maybe that's not quite the right phrase but the fact that she's just like listen i appreciate you know gods are going to war army of ghosts mm-hmm. But I really just want a slice of cake. Exactly. You know, that that's what's actually going to bring me joy in this scenario. Mm-hmm. If it's I could have some cake, please. I'm like, you go, Ruby. You you get exactly. that Exactly. That's the plot arc I'm really following here. Will Ruby yeah. get her cake? Fred. Uh, Fred. What the... F- what did I say? Fred. <laughs> yeah, Fred. I don't Feral, know tell me that. Sparrow and Ruby. Yeah, there's God Spawn. Fred, master of storms. God almighty. Uh, Feral, Sparrow, and Ruby are, are really on point in this book. They're really fun to watch scenes with. You get little breaks away from Lazo and Sarai to spend time with them and their little dramas. And I, I absolutely love all the scenes of them in this book. I think they offer this great kind of breath of yep. fresh air to almost kind of melodrama. Mm-hmm. That other characters are saying, you know, Minya, she is so caught in her trauma. She is physically stunted from the age that she had it. You know, Sarai, she is a ghost. You know, Lanzla, he's like the most powerful being, but can't save the one he truly mm-hmm. loves. Sparrow's growing veg in the garden and is thinking about what other veg she can well, grow. we'll see you about know, that. Feral's... We'll see what she's thinking okay. about, really. Because that is one of the best set-up ideas this book is a master of setup and payoff, uh, and that is one of the, the highlights. If it sounds like we aren't focusing on the main source of drama, that's because um, there have been a lot of breaks, and the story does go in a lot of different directions because it's a similarly long book to the first one. Actually, I've never seen held a physical copy of *The Muse of Nightmares*. Is it the same sort of I length can, as *A Stranger*? I can tell you they are. The two books are for very similar okay. lengths. Um, but I know what you're saying. For me, the pacing from where the first one, because we're following Laszlo on his almost physical journey mm-hmm. to weep, um, it has that kind of more even pacing where now all the characters are together, there's a lot more, okay, the camera's on these two. Okay, now we're going to look over mm-hmm. here. 
oh, let's cut back exactly. to uh, Cora Nova for a bit. And it the world gets a lot deeper, mm-hmm. even if it doesn't quite carry the same sort of forward uh, momentum in the same way that the previous one did. Yes, and you, you the listener, might be like, if you haven't read New Nemesis, you'd be like, wait, but you said this was like a thriller. What do you mean it's more or more lackadaisical pace? We'll get there. We, we're, we're not contradicting ourselves here. It both has this interesting weaving pace to begin with, but at a certain point, it starts going on a downhill slide. Not in terms of quality. I mean, the river picks up speed, like Duncan said, and becomes the rapids. And suddenly, these intersecting stories start becoming... They start bumping up against each other and creating drama for one another. Do you know what? Let's, let's just dive into no, that. No, there's more I've got to say. Oh. and Because another big thing, which I really, really like about this book, one of my favourite parts, reading it through, is that one of our perspective characters is Thion Nero. Oh, I'm actually glad you brought it back yes. to him. Because he had such an influence. In the beginning of the first book, I'm like, is this our, is this our villain? Mm. Is, this, is this our main villain antagonist of the series? And it does... not In the first book, we get a, a you know, massive sort of 180 where it's revealed like, no, he's, he's small fry. He's not an issue. Mm-hmm. Where this book, we finally then get to go into his head some more and he gets some real nice characterization. Yeah. Duncan, uh, what, did you were you thrown off by the direction he ended up going? Because you entered this book, you know, firmly the idea that Thyonira was our antagonist. But there are some really interesting directions that character that that character trajectory is um is pulled out from under us. I got two very kind of strong feelings about this. Number one. I like the trajectory he took. Mm-hmm. I like the almost subtle reveals and allusions we got to sort of the past he's had and the hardships he's sort of been silently yep. suffering. But okay. I do feel like when you read this as a continuation of where Thion was at the very end of the last book, I do feel like his character growth happens a bit quick for me i think that's uh, fair I enough i think that is a fair criticism he seemed to drop you know you we hear reference to years and years of him being in high society years and years of you know thinking he is better than other people mm-hmm. not just internally but drilled into him by his father yeah. you know you are the aristocracy you know we are above them and i'm very happy that his character arc shows him you know sort of stepping away from mm-hmm. that but he does it in about five days. And I feel like that was, you know, five days and a couple of hours manual labour. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm exaggerating a bit there. but And it's like, oh, actually, you know what? I understand. I'm with the common people now. I did manual labour and made my own bacon. <laughs> it's like, I think there's more to this. But I'm happy for the role he played in the story mm-hmm. and how much time needed to be dedicated to him. It was suitable. And I'm very sorry for that. I will turn off that phone. That's not even my phone. I'm actually going to leave this in. This is the third time this has happened. Um, uh, this time Duncan's getting getting punished.
Sorry, that was Lyris' work phone. I understand. It was in bag. I was just like, why are you ringing my partner on her day off and doing my podcast? How, How dare, dare you, you? bastard. Uh, if you didn't hear, I'm I leaving it somewhere bad in. Okay. Your, this is your punishment. Don't shame me in front of our listeners. <laughs> All right. Um, when I finished the book for the first time, I um, I was actually probably in a really similar camp. I thought his character growth came really quickly. Um, I think I'm a lot more sympathetic to it as a direction for the character now, partly because it is a great direction to take the character. And if it meant extending the length of the story or the, the number of amount of time it takes for the story to elapse to give him a more realistic narrative arc, I think that would make the book suffer a lot more if Lazo was up there for a couple of weeks instead of less than a week. However, um, reading it through this time, I thought to myself, I think this works fine. Because whilst what we see is a huge transformation for um, for Thion, which leads to him to do things that he would never do before, such as one, manual labor, and two, um, the more important thing, which is that Thion goes from a very selfish, self-entitled person to committing one uh, selfless and and kind act he he has an act of generosity he has a desire to help and i think the things that really compels us there and the reason why it gives it this ability to work at all is that thion is kind of left shattered by the by the end of the first book he has this moment where his entire belief about the world and his place in it is completely thrown into question he has to reckon with the fact that that Laszlo Strange um, is more important than him. And I think that is the inciting incident that allows him to go on the rest of his emotional journey. You're right. I think it's, it's very logical. It, it's not a left turn. It's not, um, it's not that I would stand here and say it, make, it doesn't make sense. It only fails when mm-hmm. you hold it up to the time scale of the rest of the plot. But, like you said, mm. I wouldn't change it. I don't. I think if Leontay had tried to change it to fix Thion's character development, it would break something far more important in the narrative. And that simply mm-hmm. would not do. I wouldn't have it any other way. But I think it's bit worth mentioning. Uh, perhaps if maybe Thion's characterization maybe we started a little earlier in Strange the Dreamer. Maybe if we saw him perhaps a few steps down the road he goes in Muse of Nightmares by the end of Strange, maybe then it would flow a bit more easily, but I'm just speculating and that might not even be the fix. Mm. Yeah. Uh, what I really like about Thion's section of his books is his interaction with the other characters, particularly Calixti and Rusa. I'm so glad Calixti played a much bigger role in the second book. She's in way more scenes. She gets to interact uh, with a lot more uh, interesting situations. She gets to be have a lot more agency because she was one of my favorite characters in the first book, but she actually didn't play a very important role. But this time, she and Fion and eventually uh, Ruza 
um, are exploring, like, the lost library beneath Weep that was lost long ago, rescuing ancient knowledge and bringing it up to the surface. Um, fantastic bit of world-building and drama, an opportunity for character growth, where we see them bicker and slowly get closer. Um, it just works so well. And before we crack you on keep to saying this. I'll, I'm, I'm literally standing the, um, here like, and now let's jump into the rapids. Now there's, oh, there's so much I want to crack, but you're right. You can go through all the subplots first, because once there, we begin, uh, I want uh, to uh, uh, shoot down that exciting path. Yes, I and, and again, it is like what the last third of this book is like, where a lot of stuff really goes down. But I think I want to collapse a lot of different scenes into one space. And I want us to talk about uh, the Sarai and Laszlo scenes in this book. Oh. Now, I think they in this book, Sarai and Laszlo, because they've already fallen in love. They're together. And every scene they have is yep. them trying to steal moments amongst the sort of awful stuff that's happening around them. My favourite one of mm-hmm. their scenes, though, has to be the scene where Sarai under Minya's control, bites Laszlo's lip and draws blood. Mm. And I think this is such... Yeah. To, be, to be fair, though, this isn't actually a Laszlo and Sarai moment. This is a this is more of a Minya moment about... Well, I think this, this is exactly it's really effective, is that it begins as a very romantic Laszlo and Sarai scene. It is what they've been fighting for this whole time. Uh, time and space to be together and it's corrupted by I, I really felt this in terms of like a uh, pervasion of privacy this i i felt yeah. bad so bad first of all not only the fact that they had that mm-hmm. sweet moment stolen from them and that harsh pain delivered it's the yeah. fact that they have to realize that they can't just be together while minya can literally look through sarai's eyes you know and it really yeah. perverses. It makes you then look back on the whole rest of the scene going, was Minya just watching that? Yeah, they, they go into it just in the next chapter. But Minya, this is the first time a really important thing is established. And that is the sensation Minya has holding onto her ghosts, where she conceptualizes them as gossamer threads. And she sort of doesn't pay them any attention. But the reason why she's woken from her slumber is that for the first time, she's had new sensations coming from one of her threads. And it's warmth and love and passion. And she's so disgusted by it that she acts in retribution. It's almost... um... I don't want to say... Because on one hand, you could read that as in it's, you know, oh, well, she's... She's embodying so much evil, so much hate, and the love's the natural antithesis. The other way you could read that, though, is she's still that young, she's still trapped as the young child. She's still the petulant young child who doesn't quite understand. Yeah. It's like, ugh, kissing other people? Exactly. Yucky. Kind of vibe. That's, that's part of it. You know, on one hand, it's both those things at once. On one hand, it's, it's literally punishing Sarai. It's saying, uh, I'll let you do this if you do what I want. That'll be your little treat for obeying me. And the other end of it is that, yeah, she doesn't get it. She can't sympathize with Sarai because she doesn't have feelings like that. She's she's stuck way prepubescence. Um, she doesn't understand love and passion and things like that yet. 
Geordie, can we please jump into the rapids now? Yes. Yes! Fine, fine. We'll talk about the exciting parts. Jeez! Okay, people. So, after this scene plays out, after we get nice touchstones with all the other characters, everyone comes back together for this almost second Mexican standoff where yeah. Lazlo and Sarai are in the room with Minya, and Minya, once again, issues her mm. ultimatum. And this is the scene where Laszlo does what we mentioned earlier. He says, you know, if you let Sarai go, I'll just kill you. And unfortunately, I, mm-hmm. I'm not going to I read this like I was playing D&D and he just rolled a one on his intimidation. <laughs> and she just <laughs> interrupted like, no, you won't. No, you won't. Yeah, bluff, cool, take that. No, you won't, you big softy. Um... And yeah, there's this standoff and two really, three really great things happen in this scene. It's so, uh, there's so much tension in it because as even though it's replicating the same stakes as a previous scene, it gets ratcheted up for two reasons. First, because Minya makes Sarai betray herself. Um, up till now, Sarai has been telling Lazo, don't do it. If she lets me go, then then she lets me go. But promise me, you won't betray Weep. Don't do this in my name. But then, Minya takes complete control of Sarai and puts on a show where she implores Laszlo, don't do it. Don't let me go. Please, I'm scared. Please. And you'd get this great moment from inside both Sarai's and Lazlo's perspective, where Lazlo has his heart squeezed in his chest as the woman he loves begs him to do something evil to save her. And we see inside Sarai's head a lot of really complicated emotions, disgust at being controlled like this, fear that Laszlo will believe her, and also shame that a part of her is like, yeah, please don't let me go, I am scared. And out of this, which is, uh, really, this is what puts um, Laszlo's concerns really on the forefront, isn't it? Yeah, this is his worst situation, that Sarai will turn around and beg him not to. Because he, mm-hmm. he is caught, and he doesn't have a plan, and he doesn't know how he's going to get out of this. And we learn yeah. sort of, well, I'd say we learn some key facts about Minya's power as well, which come into play later. No more is that she can make ghosts act as if themselves, but through her. She can puppet them with extreme accuracy. Yeah. Because up to this point, that's not been established. You know, when Minya takes control of ghosts, it's always yeah. been displayed as she makes them go rock solid or she makes them take physical actions, but she can't make them... Mm-hmm. betray themselves act like themselves in an undisclosed way yeah she can't put on a convincing show they describe it as she can't affect the eyes the eyes always look a little wrong and then that drops away and that opens up questions which i think are some of my mm-hmm. favorites that get explored in this book. again this book is so good for setup and payoff here's something else that's set up really well and it's in the previous book when Laszlo is knocked unconscious by an explosion, one of Sarai's moths is able to wake him up. Uh, no, 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 sorry, I'm, I'm thinking about the wrong scene. It's very similar to that, but 
But Sarai finds out that a bomb has been set beforehand, and she's able to make a completely conscious Laszlo feel fear and run away before the explosion even starts up. Something that she didn't know she could do. And as Laszlo embraces her, as she's being controlled, without even realizing this, she sends the emotions of strength and security and willingness to stand by her word into Laszlo as herself. And Laszlo has this, his eyes snap open and he has this moment of clarity and he finds his strength through Sarai to stand up and say, no, I still won't do it. Even if Sarai does let go, even if she wants me to, I'm not going to do it. This is the scene that really made me think, well, I mentioned earlier, that this story might end Mm -hmm. with Laszlo having to let Sarai go. So I was like, okay, he's been firm now. We know that Laszlo, when it comes down to it, is going to let Sarai go over let the army take weep. Because he has that that strength that comes through in this scene. And then Minya lets her go. Now, she just lets go of the thread and Sarai vanishes. I'll be honest with you. If this scene was maybe Mm -hmm. an extra third of the way through the book, I probably would have thought that was... She was gone. I did... Yeah, I agree. A bit early to let this up now. Yeah, that'd be one hell of a book if Sarai was gone in a first third. That'd be wild. But, obviously, like this way, she doesn't. She doesn't, no. It's it's this last push, and it really is, like, an effective blow to Laszlo. Like, he's not yet ready to give ground, but but having, Laszlo, but having Sarai vanish in front of him is such a shock to his system that he's basically completely disarmed. And it is the closest we come to Minya's victory. She sees that Laszlo is so despondent and weak. This is why he threatens to kill her and she doesn't believe him. Um, She brings Sarai back in order to have her gloat. And all the ghosts in Harmony staring him down, including the Ellens who are, who are weeping as they watch. And Ruby strides into the scene. You wanted to mention this earlier, Duncan. Here's Ruby. your chance. Fantastic Ruby, save the day in this scene. Yes. She comes through. Yep. And she literally just gives Minya, she's like, I think we should all have a cup of tea. And there's something very um, yep. taken from the Ellens about this. This is something that they always do. You know, they have a fight or whatever. Let's just have, let's have a cup of tea. Let's all brief. So Minya yep. takes a cup of tea and she just on like reflex. It's like, so what you do? Someone's upset, you make a hot beverage. And this tea's mm-hmm. been spiked. And... It's been spiked with the sleeping jar that Sarai used in the previous book to forestall her nightmares, and Minya falls unconscious. Yeah, she, uh, she they, they, Ruby and Sparrow, turns out it was Sparrow's plan, uh, and it's, it's delivered in such a great way, where Ruby's like, at least I did something staring at Feral, instead of the opposite, nothing, and then there's a pause and she says, it was Sparrow's idea. <laughs> So, I think what... You mentioned earlier about this book, how it, it sets up... We get a little set-up and you get little payoffs. The next few scenes, yep. I think, before, a partic- before one particular character arrives, does so many of either a set-up or a payoff that I always want to rattle through them just as sort of praise. 
We get a beautiful moment mm. where they take Minya and put her on a bed, and she starts to lose yeah. her colour. Yes. And that's right. She stops being blue. You know she what? starts to turn grey. And when we get to the the, the reveal yep. later, I'll go. That was clever. Might be a few minutes. Then yes. we get something that's been set up and adjusted. Whilst her eyes being lay unconscious, um, sorry, while Minya's while Minya's being laid down unconscious, Sarai attempts to enter her dreams, mm-hmm. and we see her yep. go through, and it's reliving the night of liberation. Is what the people of Wheat call it, when the gods were killed, and her fleeing from the yep. nursery. Now, Geordie, mm-hmm. did this yes. hit you more than some of the reveals at the end of the books? Because for me, this is the this is the moment I was lying on my sofa and I almost wanted to gasp when this clicked into place. Hmm. This was one of the few things where I was like. I, I got it. I, I was I, I got this one. I, I saw this coming. Well, I think I was even when I was reading Strange the Dreamer. I picked up on something weird and I had some suspicions. And then I started reading a scene. I was like, I was right. I, I actually, I'm, re- I'm so bad at guessing stuff that happens in Strange the Dreamer. Uh, but this one I got. So I felt very vindicated. And I sad. Think, I also I think that's what works so beautifully. Yeah, you either feel vindicative because you got you kind of got the twist right, you picked up on the clues, or you get to feel wonderfully surprised mm. when you don't. That's true. That's the great thing about twists. You should be very happy if half your audience goes, I knew it! That is just as good a reaction as everyone going, Huh? And you hear that? Game of Thrones? <laughs> anyway. That is for way in this podcast right. future. What is the twist we were talking about? We get revealed that the Ellens, and this is it set on the yes. first book, they crawled over the body of the Ellens to escape the nursery. And then finally it's put That's forward, right. wait. But they were escaping the nursery before yeah. uh, Errol Van showed up. So they ha- how who killed them? And it's Duncan, the- take uh, two inches back from your microphone, please. And they... Uh, one inch closer. So, in the last book, it's established that they crawl That's over much the bodies better. of the Ellens to escape the nursery. But, why yep. were the bodies of the Ellens there? If Elf um, yep. Van had reached the nursery, then why didn't he kill everyone? Why were they already dead? And we finally get the reveal, and it clicks into yep. place, because Minya killed mm-hmm. them to escape. Because the Ellens were not yeah. the loving people that we've been out to be. And this, everything that comes up, and mm-hmm. we've even talked about in the same podcast, we talk about how it's greater Ellen that can talk Minya down. It's the Ellens who are weeping mm-hmm. when Sarai's soul gets released. Because the Ellens aren't yep. them. They are a part of Minya yeah. that she's the loving, caring part yeah. that she put into them. Mm-hmm. And everything comes yes, together right. so well. Because it's like... I know that part I did not see coming. Um, that that took me by surprise, and it is one of the, it is it's the best part of this book. It's so good. It makes so much sense with what they, you've been established and told in Strange the Dreamer in terms of the Ellen's yeah you know, the bodies that's told in the in Strange the Dreamer in terms of um, it is you look at Minya and you're like oh she's stuck as a child or oh, how's that related it feeds into that because it's like oh she's taken a part of herself mm-hmm. and while Minya seems so one tracked mind because the part of her that does the compassion yeah. she's had to put into these characters 
And then it makes sense with those other mm-hmm. scenes. Why did the Ellens talk her down? Because it was herself. It's a bit of her telling her, you don't want to do this. Why were they the only ones who were yeah. weeping? Exactly. It's her own kindness and conscience because... talking to herself. There's an m- amazing bit later where she says, like, when she... Uh, when she has this moment of serialization where she said she didn't realize that there were pieces of her missing until they came back. I loved it. I This is the, this is the I, I mm. said, oh, you know, maybe this isn't quite as good as Strange the Dreamer. This is one of those moments that I was like, no, this is on a higher level than what Strange the Dreamer had. Yeah, there are peaks in this which are far above the best parts of Strange the Dreamer. And it's mostly in how well executed aspects of the story are. Um, I think the first story is more profound, but I think it really demonstrates how clever Lainey Taylor is as a writer, as opposed to how beautiful her writing is. And it goes a long way, this twist that's been built up. It then makes Minya's characterization and her sort of stepping back from her evil designs yep. and why she was so steadfast before it allows that to then make sense that she could be there so oh my god how are we ever mm-hmm. going to negotiate with her but then by kind of revealing well no there's th- that good bit of her has not been present by then sort of opening that floodgate it's like oh you get both mm-hmm. you get that one-sided villain who seems completely uncompromising but now she can then be whole now mm-hmm. she can start being characterizing her and moving forwards in a way that can then yeah. bring about the, the resolution and still feel natural. Mm-hmm. I say natural, but makes sense within yeah. the wonderful fantasy world it is. Yeah. We, meet, we reach another plateau in the story here, in that we've now gotten rid of the Sword of Damocles. Minya has been disarmed. She's now asleep. They can keep administering to her one of Letha's potions to keep her asleep for as long as they want. And even Ruby's like, well, Sarai can just give her nice dreams now and then, but in the whole, we're off the hook. And everyone else is like, no, we can't do that. We can't just leave her trapped there, especially since her dreams are so horrible and Sarai can't fix them. She's so trapped in her in her past and her trauma that that uh, every evil which um, Sarai banishes, Minya just generates new ones for herself. But... Now that we've reached this plateau, now that the Sword of Damocles has been severed, we get the most illuminating chapter as we enter part two of the story on Cora and Nova. We're back to our girls, Dunk. Duncan, let's talk about this chapter. <laughs> oh, there is so much that needs to be said. This chapter probably does the most for world building in terms of a single chapter. Yep. It, the amount mm-hmm. of new information that we get revealed. And the big gasp moment. Yes, the gasp moment in terms of, you know. I would say this, like this isn't, unlike with the Ellens, where I'm like, oh God, the emotions are there. This is like, yep. oh wow, never knew that. I, I wasn't, I wasn't okay. sitting there going, oh my God, I can't believe, how could this be? I was like, okay, you've brought something new to the table. That's nice. That, that adds to my tapestry. Maybe we're coming at this from different perspectives. Duncan, tell us what happens in this scene. Okay. This is the awkward bit where I then describe a completely different scene and... Well, completely <laughs> different pages, literally. Um, this is a scene where Cora and Nova are taken into this flying uh, wasp-like ship 
made out of the mezzanine metal, and they meet Scathis, who is the head of the gods that ruled over Weep. And he basically is on a job for the Grand Empire, to which he's only a small soldier for. Not the lowest rank, but yep. he's not he's not all powerful, he's not godlike in this world. And he's here to seek out their magical mm-hmm. powers. And we get revealed yep. that Chorus magical power, Cobra's magical Yeah. Chorus magical power. Yep, you got it the first time. Chorus magical power is that she can manifest a very familiar looking white bird out of herself as an extension of her being. Yep. And we also learn her full name. We do indeed. Kuroka. (laughs) I'll give it a try. Koroko. Koroko. And this finally snaps together some of the identities of the gods above Weep and how Kora Nova are Mm -hmm. going to relate to that story. We learn in this moment that this is a Mm -hmm. set far in the past for the original world and that these godlike beings... Although godlike in the world of Laszlo are far more, not mm-hmm. common, but far more common in this own world, which you learn is, is, a, is a different world. These are multidimensional yep. beings. Walking across the plains, giving people blue amulets to make them into wizard soldiers. Um, they're mundane. Scaphus is a bureaucrat. He's not special. He He is just some guy who happens to have an ability which makes him control other people, and an especial penchant for cruelty. And he is. This is interesting, because these chapters... In fact, I believe this might be the only chapter where Scathis appears in person. There, are, Yeah, it's just the two chapters in which um, in which you have these flashbacks. We can, we can discuss them together, because there's no point uh, in us generating drama by splitting them up. Absolutely. But yeah, he only appears in two chapters in the flesh in the entire series. The only other time he appears is in a dream, in which um, which is experienced by Laszlo and Sarai. I think this is so kind of powerful, especially when you're trying to read this book and the character's journeys of dealing with trauma across to our world. Mm-hmm. Um, when I say, you know, across to the real world, because. Up to this point, Scathis was the god. He was this being. He was the yep. the, the devil, sort of personified, you know. Mm-hmm. And when they break him down to this, basically, a really bad guy, but he's just a cold mm-hmm. in bureaucracy. He's just, and not even that, he's nothing impressive about him. He's described as being a little short, quite plain looking, not that physically intimidating. There's no grandeur about him. He's given no great airs. The only thing which is spectacular about him is how fucking evil he is. I just think that's such a a nice message. I say nice message. That's a terrible, horrible thing. But it's very much more grandiose to think that it's not... This evil wasn't born out of some dark, far-off power. Mm. Yeah. He's just a terrible person and to feel we don't get a lot of that, yep. more about his backstory he is left very much mm-hmm. as just you know what there was nothing in his destiny that would have made led him to be sort of the dark lord mm-hmm. he was just an absolute i'm, I'm going to use the term arsehole but that does not cover it of course it doesn't cover it but the, the point you're making is is that the book doesn't in any way make him seem there's nothing 
uh, to to uh, to amend you to him. You know, a lot of uh, heinous villains, audiences like spending time with them because they're cool or they're interesting or some part of them looks up to them. It's why a lot of villains, a lot of really shitty people, uh, end up thinking of them as like people to model themselves around. No one's gonna look in Scaffus and be like, yeah, I want to be like that guy or that guy's super cool. But that's what creates such a good contrast then because then it kind of reveals to us how Scaffus has been made larger in everyone's mind and everyone's memories than he ever was. In this scene, we reveal he tests he's testing Cora and Nova for their powers. Yeah. Cora reveals she has a bird that she can send off and yep. essentially actually it's his spy. He says, yes, this is an opportunity. But Nova, mm-hmm. Nova he brands pirate. Because she has... That's the- right. At first it appears she doesn't have any powers, which is considered impossible. Um... But eventually he tries to force her power out of her with an unapproved method, which is that he tries to strangle her sister to death. Using his powers, using the powers of the metal, I think that's quite a key point to that. And in her desperation, Nova reaches out, sort of through her magic, and steals Scapus's power. And renders him, well... I was about to say harmless. Mundane. Yeah, mundane. He becomes a normal, like a normal person at that point. And this mm-hmm. scares Scapus so much. Mm-hmm. It's very, I, I quite like how quick almost the rest of this scene plays out. It does. It, 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 I read it through again. It's one thing after another. She doesn't just snatch his gift. Every time someone tries to use their power against, uh, against her, she just... <laughs> reaches out and grabs it and it turns out she doesn't just take gifts and then and then use them herself she's like a uh, the lens to a lighthouse she amplifies them mm-hmm. so she finds that she a telepath tries to stop her she steals her telepathic powers and then just like psychically attacks him he collapses on the ground having a seizure someone has the power to put them people to sleep she can knock them unconscious immediately um the other person has like te- te- telekinesis. She just backs him away, and she has this huge, like, carry like meltdown, brimming with power, completely emotionally distraught by watching her sister in danger. And it's only because Cora is able to calm her down by embracing her, by by stroking her, and saying it's okay, it's okay, that the rampage stops, and immediately. Scaphus, upon getting his powers back, cracks her on the back of the head, dumps her out of the ship into the dirt, and leaves. Just gets out of town. He um, might tell it. This is kind of obviously amusing, but it is just the fact that this sort of powerful character that's been built up just instantly yeah. is like, nope. Not dealing with this. We're yes, out. exactly. It, he, he's, he has no gravitas. He has no grace. And the only reason he doesn't kill her right then and there is that he says to Cora, from now on, your sister's life hangs in the balance. Um, you do whatever I say. You are not going to serve the Empire. You're going to serve me. And if you do anything... That means you disobey me. I'll kill your sister. Now, do you not feel to a small extent that's almost an empty threat? Because what we've just established is he's terrified of her power. 
No, he's it's not an empty threat dunk because she's not going to be blue oh, when he returns. You're absolutely right. So three plot point that's established yeah. here. It's actually contact yes. with the the mesmeric metal that allows them to one turn blue, appear visually different yeah. to human beings, and use yeah. their powers. That's right. Quite critical. If you're not in contact with a metal, you're mundane. So when she when Nova wakes up, she's alone. She for the first time in her life, she doesn't have her sister. And for another thing. No one knows how terrifyingly powerful she is. Um, the, the story goes from soft magic to hard magic system now. Now, magical abilities have a, a number rating system, like power levels and Dragon Ball. And she's described as being off the scale. It goes from 1 to 10. She's probably an 11. Um, but she is nobody now. And she has no one. She's in this town where she's like treated as a non-person. The town is described as incredibly misogynistic and patriarchal. Women are second-class citizens. They can actually be like sold as brides. And that's what happens in the next scene is that um, after she's separated from her sister, her father sells her to like the town leader. Um, and it has, she enters into this really heartbreaking and sad part of the book where all the magic fades away from the story. And it's about, um, a very real suffering experienced by women around the world. It's, it's this moment where we reflect on the fact that Strange the Dreamer was about the trauma of sexual violence. This is about the toxic, the toxicity of the patriarchy. And I think the time spent in these chapters, how it sort of dwells on this, and the fact that it does, it's like the magic, you know, Scaphis, Korra, they've literally just left. They physically left the town, the village, the continent even, and we're just left mm-hmm. with normal, mundane, horrible people um, yep. abusing this person. And she... She doesn't have any magic power. She doesn't have the hope of a greater life. She's just got to keep mm-hmm. the inner strength to keep going in the hope that one mm-hmm. day she'll be with her sister again. And then we get tra- drags back to um, back to Laszlo and Co. Now, Lordy, I'm going to yes. say that what plays out next is not as valued as a play-by-play until we really get to the grander themes of Nova interacting with the rest of the characters later on. Agreed. So I'm just going to, for those listening, um, and I'm simply, hopefully, a lot of you uh, have also read the book, but mm-hmm. if you haven't and you just enjoy the sound of our voices, eventually what gets revealed is that there is a portal in the centre of the Citadel that allows transversing right. of the world. And That's right. It turns out this is a multi-dimensional story. There is a network of worlds. It's actually well set up in that um, we don't just... We see the portal before the characters do because Rafe, the eagle, when it gets temporarily opened for the first time in like 25 years, um, Rafe swoops in immediately and vanishes from sight. And we're like, okay, that was weird. Where did that bird just go? And then in like the next chapter... Um, it's not Lazo and Co. who talk about portals. It's Thion Nero and, and Co. down on the ground who find the Thakranatset, the holy book of weep, which does this big lore dump 
about the Seraphim who were mentioned in the previous book and about how they crossed over through multiple worlds. There's this really great moment where they're listing down all these, these, these planes of existence from the first one. You know, being like, oh, this is where the seraphim come from. And one by one, like a stack of plates, like pages in a book, you go through world by world. And it goes like, it's this one, and it's this one, and then it's this place called Earth, and then it's this one, and it just breeze past it. I think it's a really nice moment. And actually, if you, I know you listen to this, the audio book, um, in the mm-hmm. paperback edition that I have, you actually have that page um, at the back of the book. Really? And it has all the worlds. Uh, interesting enough, it lists them all out in the uh, symbology of weep. Mm-hmm. So it's not in our language. And then on the next page, there's a translating sheet. <laughs> so Laszlo translated yeah, for us. Yeah, so you have to go back and forth and quickly piece out all the letters and write out all the different worlds. Oh, that's so good. I love that. Oh, man. Really fun addition. Stupid me with my audiobooks. It's not these little things. Uh, exactly. Yeah. This portal has been established, and we eventually get to the point where Nova comes through. And she doesn't come through alone. She comes through with rescued children that were originally mm-hmm. uh, from the Citadel. The other that's children right. at the nursery, when they reached of age or established their power, would be taken. Mm-hmm through the portal uh, to this other world where essentially Scathis mm-hmm. was selling off his children. And yep. he, it's finally revealed that what this grand plan of evil was, why they were abusing Weep. Mm-hmm. And it, even when the captors say, oh, Scathis, he just enjoyed sexually assaulting people. He was just yep. that terrible person. And the plan to make money off the children probably came second. That it was, a, it said it was like a coincidence that he just he found out that this one group of humans in this one world produce um, excellent god spawn children. They are very powerful, and he generates, he holds auctions. He, he de- develops a business based on uh, abuse, where he would sell off children to be child soldiers across the, the across the universes. It's, do you know what, it's almost, um, talking about the last book, how it deals, you know, it's not dealing with abuse, it's not very graphic, it's not on page, it's dealing with the people who suffer through the traumas, mm-hmm. and that's continued Exactly. Here. You know, we get these new characters introduced, led by Nova, who we've firmly seen her own trauma, and these are the children that were taken to be sold off. But they did, They never got to that, because Elfe uh, rised up, the gods fell, and then Nova showed up on the other side of the rift to rescue them. But now they've come through. And here's something really interesting, mm-hmm. okay? So, Nova is on this path of vengeance. Just like Minya, she's out for revenge. But her revenge is against Scathus. She wants to get her sister back, and she wants to put Scathus in a little cage and make him die slowly. When she arrives, there's no one to be revenged upon. We realize that... She arrived outside the portal to get through to, um, you know, to get through to their world not long after the carnage, which means she's been waiting on the doorstep for the portal to appear for what, 15, 16 years? Yep, at this point, I think it'd be 15 years. Hmm. 
And that is a it's that is barely mentioned at all. It's just left for us to sort of unpack because it's not even stated. You just have to sort of calculate that like, okay, so she showed up to rescue from these cages. So they weren't there for long, which means that she's just been there just waiting. What they do and, tell um, us, though, is mm-hmm. that she is has been doing this hunting for nearly 200 years. That's right. So She's although, been doing... She's been hunting Scaphus since before he came to weep. And it, it does add this sort of expansion to, to the fact that the events that we're seeing... Mm-hmm. It's not only, you know, after the carnage, after the gods fell. It's after 200 years of them going through the multiverse. We've caught... Just the tail end of their story. Exactly. And we suddenly enter the action portion of this book. Because it's suddenly, for the first time in the book, really, aside from a scrap with some ghosts, it's a fight. Mm. We've seen these characters and their powers, and now we watch them throw down with one another. And even though Lainey Taylor hasn't written anything like an action scene up to this point... It's actually really well written and exciting. It uses powers in a lot of creative ways, and it uses a lot of the setups which we've been having throughout the book and uses them to full advantage. It it gives me uh, a very similar feel to what I uh, felt reading some of uh, Brandon Sanderson's works, like Mistborn. I'll take your word for it. Where you have these, you have these powers that are quite well established. You know, you know what these characters can do. But then in the action scene, it reapplies those same powers under the same rule set, but in different contexts. And you get these really cool moments of, oh, they're using that ability, but, oh, now it, it works that way. So suddenly we have this action scene, and we get to see Lainey Taylor explore her characters in a lot of different sense. Because the first thing which they try to do is Laszlo tries to just whoosh, save a day. The most powerful person in the entire book... Uh, tries to step in, and the first thing which Nova does is steal his powers. And the moment she figures out what he can do, she thinks he is Scaphus. She is so far gone that she cannot recognize him, and she immediately starts to strangle him to death with his own Mizarfium, just like he did to her sister centuries ago. And every time someone else whips out a power against her, she snatches it away. We find out she can control five powers. She can hold them in her hands, and then she's at her limit. That is enough to take out literally the entire cast. And that sets up this really nice moment where Nova's come in. She is now supplanting the position as the big bad, the biggest threat to our characters. Mm -hmm. So when the old big bad, Minya, arrives, it's such a nice uh, subversion. When all hope is lost, who comes padding in but Minya? And I I adore this scene. I adore this uh-huh. moment of, firstly, how Minya is just like, you know, she's had this conflict with the characters. They have, in a way, from her perspective, betrayed her up to this point. You know, they drugged her. They were taking yeah. the sides of the people of Weep. But when she sees them mm-hmm. under threat, this sort of maternal... It just kicks off her hair and she's just like, you will not harm my my family. What? Exactly. When this happened, like I was walking down a highway in America. I've explored this last week. <laughs> um, walking back from the movies and I literally like skipped and punched the air when this happened. I was so excited and hyped that the bad guy is here to save the day. I love it so much. 
And the best part is it comes in a really interesting manner. Not only uh, can Nova not deal with these ghosts, you know, she's like, she's trying to steal these ghosts' weird shape-shifting powers, but it's not working. Why isn't it working? Her people are overcome. One of her minions gets bitten by a little girl ghost, which is horrifying if you think about it. Um, but then Nova sees Minya and she says, Ah, you, you're the one doing this. You're controlling these ghosts. And she steals Minya's gift. And that is the worst thing she could have done. And this is an amazing moment. I gasped when I heard this on the audiobook. Because suddenly, Nova is crushed under the weight of these ghosts. All their emotions, all their feelings, all their hatred to the person who's controlling them goes flooding up these threads which she's, gr- which she's grabbed. And she is flummoxed and defeated at once she's bowled over and you suddenly realize like oh you weren't ready for this minya has to shoulder so much in of of that that the idea of grasping onto her trauma that grasping onto her hate would actually harm you if you try to experience it herself something which minya has accumulated year by year by seizing it at once, Nova has underestimated Minya and has been hoisted by her own petard. And we get the colossal weight of what's on Minya is then established to the reader. This is the mm. first time we find out yeah. what she's been holding up. And it's so nice to have this character that, I'll be honest, for the first third of this book, I was prepared to go... Oh, is she the she's the pure evil. Is that what we're dealing with here? She's just she's just wrong. Like I know she's gone through the trauma to create her, but is mm. she too far gone? And then bit by bit through the Ellens and through this scene, we really do. I felt so much like not only did I feel bad for her because of what she'd been through, I mm. felt bad now because I had been, as the reader, hating on her too much. I'm not like oh my god no, but she was also going through this. Mm. I feel bad for thinking she was too far gone. And the, also we get Minya's perspective and this tremendous feeling of lightness that she didn't know she was being crushed until the weight was lifted. And suddenly she has this moment of, of being able to breathe for the first time in years. And uh, it's this profound moment. It's so amazing. What also makes it amazing is that when the ghosts turn on her, Laszlo is the person who runs up grabs her and like shields her with her with her body with his body and she has this moment of having to reckon with the fact that no one touches Minya no one makes contact with her no one wants to hug her or hold her and the first person to embrace her in years is someone who should hate her trying to save her life and she keeps trying to rationalize it away being like this isn't human compassion uh he's doing this to protect Sarai because if I die Sarai goes and we know that's not true. And we know she's pushing away the prospect of real human connection. It's so nice in Laszlo to see someone who is so virtuous, mm-hmm. but just skirts sort of that white knight element. Mm. He's not the, he's not this, many, you know, he's not this Arthurian, you know, he's the perfect soldier as well. Mm-hmm. He still has faults, but he's, He's a better person than I am. He is so forgiving and understanding. Yeah, he's all sweetness and light. But the only time that's really challenged is in what comes next, because things go bad. 
Everyone's oh. trying to get out. Errol Fane's being like, everyone run. Everyone get out. And he tells Nova to redirect her ire. He says, I'm the one who killed Coraco. I killed all the gods. It's my fault. Blame me. And he's offering himself up. And Errol Fane has had the first time in his life, has had the chance to meet his daughter, to reconcile, to make peace. And he's so... He's actually happy for the first time in years. And he has this moment where he's like, and now I have to give it up. I have to let it go. I have to do this to protect my daughter and these children who I have every reason to hate, but whom I do not. Now, this is the moment he makes that ultimate sacrifice. And this is so good because this is so... I was so emotionally impacted by this. I was like, Errol Fane, you've done so much. You've come for part. You've already sacrificed so much, and yet you're sacrificing more. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm just going to... The spoilers are, I might be skipping ahead here, Geordie, and I'm sure you want yep. to talk about this more. How do you feel about this moment as the conclusion to Errol Fane's character? I like this moment a lot. I like that it's this moment where he makes this ultimate gesture, he makes this ultimate sacrifice, he's prepared to let it all go, and that after this, he's finally able to work through the last of his damage. You know, um, he's he spent so much of his life uh, in self-loathing because of what the gods have done, and what they've made him feel, and what they've made him do. Um, and... So to see him come out the other side and get on the path to healing, um, it's this really cathartic experience. And um, I like the fact that he, not only does he, after this, does he um, make this gesture, but then he sort of steps out. He stops being the main part of the story because he doesn't want to put himself in danger anymore. No. He gave it all up and he knows that he's sort of earned his rest. And this is the only bit that I didn't enjoy as much. Okay. And this is very subjective to me. But I was so impacted by the fact that he was making this apparent, this ultimate sacrifice. The fact that he doesn't end up technically making it. Mm-hmm. I felt undermined him a little bit. I can see exactly where you're coming from here. Because I've had way, way, way too many experiences of people making... Uh, a self-sacrificial gesture only to be saved at the last second. I'm assuming we're talking about literature, right? And not just life in general. <laughs> oh, too close to home, Dunk. Uh, <laughs> that is not for the podcast. That is for the therapist count. But, um, <laughs> but no, I'm talking about literature. <laughs> um, I've had so many experiences of people being saved at the last moment in stories and it undermining completely the idea that, oh, they were so heroic. They were going to sacrifice themselves. I still think it works here because the saving is so earned. You're right. And I do think being prepared to make that sacrifice, whether or not you make it, in principle, you're right. It is the same from that kind of character growth. But from the sort of resonance with me, the reader, I do feel it just just tweaks it back a bit. It's like, oh, I would have felt... Or really, I would have felt even worse about this if he'd actually gone through with it. Yeah. The reason why it works is, um, is, and it's seen through how, um, 
the, the scene unfolds because things go from bad to worse. Um, Nova, after being so overwhelmed by the ghosts, is so frazzled and so uh, defeated that even though she has the power to kill all of them, um, she she says, I, have to, I just have to get out of here. I have to get out of here. I've got to clear my head. So she rips open the citadel with Lazo's power. She scoops everyone up in the citadel's hand. And, and in a really excellent bit of like uh, descriptive writing, she tosses them out. But she doesn't just drop them from the sky. She stoops down and rolls them like dice. They go skittering across the floor into the center of an amphitheater. And um, for the first time, Sarai and Ko are on the ground in weep. But Laszlo isn't there. She didn't let Laszlo go. She's kept Laszlo as her prisoner. And we have this amazing couple of chapters where it snaps back and forth between Sarai on the ground and Lazo up in the citadel. And this is the one time, even when he was fighting with Minya, where Lazo has completely lost his school. He's screaming and shouting and imploring, please leave them one bit of misophium. And he's so... He does such a good job of expressing his stress more than anything. Being like, don't do this, don't do this, you're going to ruin everything, don't do it! And it keeps happening and he's powerless to stop it. I think it brings us into this great, almost, um, well, almost, this inverse of the previous book, where now, Lazo's the ones trapped in the Citadel, and now we get to jump mm-hmm. to Sarai, and now Sarai's on the considered ground. considered that, yeah. It is an inversion. Him. And it's, yeah, it is. It's an inversion, and I do think it subverts the end of the last book mm-hmm. where it's Sarai's chance to be the hero. And this is what makes this bit a thriller because there are so many ticking clocks. Laszlo's being abducted. Um, Minya is in weep. She's in weep. She's down in the city ready to kill people with her ghost army which she has under her control again. Um, and, 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 and the Tizakane are there and they see Godspawn in their city and they see dead Errol Thane and you're like oh my god how could this get worse and then it does get worse because you remember they don't have Mazarthium so their powers are going to run out which means that Minya's powers are going to run out which means that Sarai is going to vanish and this is when we just get this almost bullet uh, sorry not in terms of writing but in terms of mm-hmm. plot progress and this bullet point of like plot threads coming together and Climax is clicking in place. Because this is when Thion comes in. And we establish he has a small piece of the uh, Misarsium. This is when Minya comes in. And we discussed earlier about the Ellens. And it's finally truly revealed. Yeah. This is when... Well, she understands it herself. Having been in denial all this time. And this is when this really nice bit with Sparrow. Which I think I'm going to let you yes. discuss. It's so well set up. So, in book one. And halfway through book one, this innocuous thing happens where Sparrow, who we think only has the power to to grow plants, she does something very unusual. She does Sarai's hair. And she does this and she describes how she uses her powers of growth to um to make her hair more lustrous. She repairs split ends, she gives it volume, and then she puts flowers in her hair. And it's really understated. It could not be more thrown away. Oh, yeah, she just does this. She just does this. But the implications are massive. 
because at the start of this book, for the first time, Sparrow sees uh, Sarai's dead body, and she thinks to herself, if I can grow flowers, why can't I bring this back? Why can't I bring her back to life? And it's this hard moment for her. And she repairs this patch of burnt flowers where they burnt her body. And this, it's never stated in the book, but you can see her line of thought. I can regrow these flowers. Is there anything else I can do? Sarai is made to bite Laszlo's lips. So she says, can I just try something? And she reaches out and like is touching his lip to try and heal it. And they've broken up by Ruby failing to find sugar, and it's forgotten about. And then later, Sarai says, hey, your look's looking a lot better. Far enough away that you've kind of forgotten. And then finally, Errol Thane is struck down, and Sparrow is sprinting onto the scene in the middle of a fight where she cannot contribute, where she has no way of hurting anyone. She goes down and she puts hands on him. And in this scene, bit by bit, as she gets shot with an arrow, she brings Errol Thane back. She brings him back from the brink of death and she heals him. And in doing so, we see, and Minya sees for the first time, her go from blue to grey to brown. All her power is drained away as she puts all of it into bringing Errol Thane and Azarine back. So not only is this a fantastically well-set-up reveal about what Sparrow's power can really do, it also goes straight into the next piece of drama because Minya sees for the first time that they can be they can't they can turn into not Godspawn. And because she sees it right in front of her, she's like, she has to believe it. And that leads into the into Minya's uh, into Minya's character shift. Duncan, take the wheel. Oh, okay. Minya's character shift. She has this moment where she realises, and I think this is... She has this one moment where she kind of realises that we're all the same. And that's such an eloquent, kind of beautiful message, which is just like, we're not fundamentally different. Us Godspawn and the humans do not have to be at odds. And it's so such a nice realisation of like letting go that prejudice... And that hatred, because she's looking then at her, her family, her, effectively her, her sister, turn, in her eyes, into a human. And it's just like, how can I keep this going? And the other thing, really important thing, is that, that Sarai is trying to tell her this, and then she realises that it is all too late. And at the end of the chapter is, Minya was turning grey. Because Minya uses so much of her strength to keep these, go these, these ghosts in check. And so, when Minya finds this out, she literally has to let go. She realises what it would really mean to lose Sarai. And she's threatened to do it. She's threatened to, to do it herself. But when she realises that she doesn't get a choice, that this is something that's really happening, she has to confront the fact that she doesn't want to lose Sarai, that Sarai, that she loves Sarai, and she has to literally let go of her trauma, of her ghosts. Ah, oh, and it's so nicely done, not only just letting go of the ghosts, the ghost army, and giving mm -hmm. up the opportunity for revenge, and she lets go of the trauma. When we return to the, the Ellens, she lets them go, it's not only through, it's not just letting go of the trauma, but it's mm -hmm. allowing those bits of her, the compassion to finally come back 
and yep. to feel more whole having let go of the trauma uh, and then and, you know, she actually like when she sort of realizes what the Ellens are, she has this moment where she like sees her true memories, which is a little pet peeve of mine because recovered memories aren't real and it's dangerous to perpetuate the idea that they are. But I'm not going to make a big thing I, out of it. I would argue from the sense of this scene, the fact that Lenny Taylor is has written it in such a way that we can talk about letting go of the ghost and letting go of her trauma yep. in the same language. Mm-hmm. that's clear what she's trying to of course she's trying I, I, to allow absolutely you absolutely to use the same language or the real world language for dealing with trauma but relate it to this fantastical ghost army which is a lovely sentence to say <laughs> um and i do think yeah she's had to make some sacrifices for that to fully work mm-hmm. but i think the end result uh, was a, a worthwhile yeah. So she realizes what the Ellens are, what they represent to her, how much of herself is in them, and she tears out these pieces and she lets them go and she realizes all the parts of her that were missing before. And she's lost and confused and frightened and she's just as forthright and strong. She is demanding, bossing Errol Thane around, telling him to get her some Mizarfium, because she's still the boss, but there is no Mizarfium. But the piece in Thion's pocket, and this is the most nail-biting part of the story. Minya's not just turning grey, she's turning brown. She's she's losing completely. Her and Sarai are, are saying their, their tearful goodbyes to one another. When Thion puts it together piece by piece, and then he starts running and running and running, and someone who would never have have crossed the street to help someone before steps up and saves the day. He gives he gives them the last piece of Mizarfium, and Sarai is saved by Thion Nero, the true hero of the story. He did it, ever people. There was one. Clearly, that's why we've been here. <laughs> but in many respects, Woody, and I don't know how, how you feel on this. I feel like that to me is the climax of Strange, the Dreamer. The characters introduced in that book, that is the end of the story. The the resolution with Minya, to me, was the most emotionally resonant part. You know what? To a certain extent, you're right. Like, if nothing else happened, there would have been a happy ending there. Like, and the only person who wouldn't have gotten a happy ending would have been Laszlo. And then Sarai, by, you know, from an adjacent perspective. Because Weep would be saved. The, the citadel yeah. is gone from the sky. The godspawn have a place to call home at last. And it's, I think it's, in many respects, one of my kind of greater criticisms of Muse of Nightmares is the fact that Nova at this point really does feel like this just added addition. It's like we had Minya, this person who, can, who was struggling to let go and move past her trauma. And she's done that. And now it's like, oh, sorry, here's another person who's also can't you know struggling to process her trauma yeah no you've got to deal with her as well it's like i can see your point i i i can i mean they they are incredibly similar and that's made quite clear they have uh similar traumas um i think it is profound in that minya's response when they do decide okay now we have to rescue laszlo we've had our you know we've um We've had our midpoint climax, not our midpoint climax, we've had our big one. We've rescued Princess Leia, as it were. Now we have to destroy the Death Star. Uh, we've, we've saved the city. Now we have to rescue our princess, Laszlo. And I think that's a very apt description of him at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, what, and do you know what? I think it's 
as I was sounding very critical about it, I think it's very good for what it then allows us to do. Yeah. And Nova is really a well-written character. That can't really be overstated. Like Nova is a well-written character, and we also then get to explore uh, with Minya. It's how you deal with, you know, how you can help someone overcome and pass that trauma. How she can let go. But with Nova, we then get to explore the other side of the coin. Someone who maybe can't let go or can't live a full life afterwards. And I think it is worth it to deliver those moments. Even if I do feel a little bit, when you, when you see the uh, strange duology as a whole, it feels like a little bit of that, and here's another villain. It's not really a villain. You're right. It's an extension of You're the right. trauma. That it is an extension. Or it is just another victim lashing out in an unhealthy way and this is what i like most about the end of the book they gather everyone up they get in their silk sleds they like they gather the the a and b team together they go through the portal in the sky and they have their last uh confrontation and and what's so interesting about this confrontation is that all the sort of side characters who maybe weren't acting out the heroes who weren't taking the actions get a bit of an opportunity. Mm-hmm. You know, Calixi does scales the Citadel. I think it's just Calixi, you know actually. As I said, I literally went to list them up. I, I went, think... Calixi. And then yeah. I went, I was holding them with one finger in the air going, um... Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they really didn't all need to It was to nice come. to be around. Um, I... <laughs> yeah. It's nice that Ruza was there. I'll tell you why they were there. Zara needs to be there because Zara brought a bow. And the point there is that Zara and Ruza are warriors. They could kill um, Nova in her sleep. They find her and she's sleeping. So they could just do it. But the point of the story isn't killing Nova. The point of the story is saving the monster. And that's where Sarai steps up and takes on the same, in similar role that Laszlo had in the last story. She then goes, no, I can Mm -hmm. save her. And we go into yep. the... And Minya is all about saying, like, let's just kill her. Let's, we which can is so do nice it. Because that's still within character. You know, Minya's let go of her trauma, but she's not, she's not changed. That's right, that's right. This is a really well-written scene. She says, let's just kill her. And Sarai says, there has to be a better way. And Minya stops for a second and says, okay. And that's how she... And Sarai gets bold over, like, oh my god. <laughs> Minya just conceded something that's never happened before. And it's this little cute, little slow step using like she's more able to to act in a in a healthy manner. So we get this like Sarai goes into Nova's mind and what plays out and I think one of the best dream sequences of this book, where it's this sure, lovely metaphor sure. of Nova being out on the ice and the ice is cracking and the dark depths of the ocean are just below it ready to swallow her. They see the frozen body literally a trail of the bodies that she's left behind on her long and horrific journey over 200 years to find Scathis. And this is where I really do like the fact, actually, then, that Nova's brought in. Because Nova, although she may be able to let go of sort of our hate, unlike Minya, she's lost all who she sees as family. Mm-hmm. And we get a very sombre moment where once they... Move past this, you know, Sarai reaches out to her. They come out of the dream. The thing which Sarai is able to do is she's able to reconcile the sisters. Because up till now, she tries to talk Nova down. She can't. But you know who can? Cora. 
and they have this um, beautiful conversation in which Koriko apologizes to her sister for making her go on this quest for revenge. And it's complicated and it's difficult and it's so beautiful. It really makes you... Koriko says, I, I shouldn't have asked you to come save me. That was wrong of me because you you wasted your life trying to find me. And Nova says, I would have wasted a hundred lives trying to find you. Uh, and I was just a little too late if only I'd made it a little sooner. Uh, and said, you did the impossible. But I didn't do the impossible because I did it, so it was possible. And that means if it was possible, then I could have done it faster. Do you ever feel like uh, this particular scene, because we've got such intimacy with the other characters, with Minya and Sarai, that at this point you always feel mm. like you're just staring into the, their story, like you're a bit of a stranger in this one. It's like, yeah, we don't know what Nova's gone through. Like, Yeah, we see a little bit of it. I, um... In my preparation for this episode, something I did, which I haven't done yet, is I decided I would look at some Strange the Dreamer fanfiction. And I was not surprised that a lot of it... I can't give you statistics, I didn't do a proper search, but I definitely think the, the mass and majority of what I saw in terms of what people write fanfiction about is they write about Nova and Korra, and specifically about Nova's quest to find Korra. What did she do in those 200 years? Where did she go? It doesn't surprise me that that's the part which really captured people's imaginations and which they wanted to explore more of by themselves. Do you know, that doesn't surprise me either. Um, because although like my favourite part, this Georgie so far, is like the wonderful dream sequences with Laszlo and Sarai, mm -hmm. um, I feel like mm -hmm. I could never write it about Lanny Taylor, so what, what would be the fun of exploring that? Like, oh, I want to, I want to just explore more beautiful dream sequences. Like, yeah, but I'm not a good writer. The conclusion of this scene, the conclusion of this scene, after the sisters get to speak to one another for one last time, is that Nova, abiding by Cora's wishes to put the hate to rest, she lets them go. She releases them. And as Sarai and Laszlo are reconciled, I'm going to do a trigger warning at the start of this episode. Um, she steps to the rail and, um, she jumps. And we have this somber moment of, even though we tried to save someone who we didn't have to save, we tried to do the right thing. At the end of the day, we gave her a last moment of closure, but we couldn't give her a reason to live. It's, without a doubt, mm -hmm. the most somber aspect of this ending, because all, and you know, I mean, this is kind of possible, but all the characters that we care about, uh, all the good guys, you know, they get happy endings here. But they couldn't, they couldn't save the antagonist effectively. And that's where I really do enjoy the fact that I, going into this and early on in the novel, was a little bit frustrated. Oh, come on, guys. Come on. Like, do we really need to try and save everyone? And I respect this book for bringing me round to the Laszlo's and Sarai's perspective. I went, no, they're, they're doing the right thing. These are the characters that I should be empathising with. And I think it's very powerful that... And I mostly speak about someone coming from a lot of other fantasy literature where I'm not going to lie, the number of times where it's like, shall we spare the villain? I'm like, well, you killed a lot of his minions, but yeah, sure, let's spare the big bad. Why not, guys? That's true. Yeah, I mean, and this is the, um, the perfect way to explore that, which is that it's not hypocritical. Laszlo's not slaughtering people on the way to the top and then being like, 
oh, if I kill you, I'd be just as bad as you. Um, it they do, it doesn't have this wacky set of morality. It's quite clear the characters don't want to kill anyone. And Lasso doesn't. Sarai doesn't. Mm-hmm. No, it's not a violent story. These aren't... As much as they're packing some warriors and they have fantastic powers and Minya's incredibly dangerous, when it comes to their final confrontation, uh, the question is, how do we how do we save these people? Now, I will say, I think the end of the story is a teeny bit rushed. Saying this as I'm like wrapping things up, I do appreciate that things do get wrapped up at the pace that they do, because... By the time I've, I felt we dealt with Minya, down on the ground, I was quite like, okay, oh my god, it's almost fatigue, I was like, come on, just one more challenge, one more challenge. And it's a very, it's brief, and I'll be honest, I could summarise this chapter like this, uh, everyone who's alive has a happy ending, um, and they go off for further adventures. Yay! No. Kinda. <laughs> Kinda, I, and I like that, to be honest, I think that's a very upbeat ending, and I'm not asking, but... I'll, I'll be honest, it was happier than I was expecting, and I think mm-hmm. that might say more about me. The Nessie expectations based on the book, and I like that it had a happy ending, but it did feel very much like, and they end up where they wanted, they end up where they wanted, they all got to move past their traumas. Which... Now, you say that, yes, everyone does basically get a happy ending, and that's nice. I'm really glad that everyone who wasn't Nova and Cora got a happy ending. But, um... It does go in a lot of unexpected directions. For example, they're not settling in Weep. They're now going to be exploring the cosmos. There are thousands and thousands of children out there, and they intend to rescue all of them. And they say some will be too far gone. Some will be people we can't help, but we're going to try. Just like we tried with Nova, and we gave her a little bit of closure, even though we couldn't save her completely, we're going to try. And that leads us to the final, final, last five words of this book. Mm-hmm. The end. Brackets. Or is it? Yeah, that was a tiny bit too much. Uh, Steve West, the narrator, really made something of that last line. And I was like, okay, Lainey Taylor, you earned that, but come on now. Uh, the, the name of Weep gets returned to them, which is very nice. I don't remember what it is. Oh, I can bet. I think I've written down. Uh, Amez- Amezel. Amazu. Amazu, yes. Um, you're right, and it's, I think, I feel, unlike um, Strength the Dreamer, mm-hmm. this is an ending. I, I do yes. not need a, what is it, I think I, I would be happy to read more by Lanny Taylor mm. in general, yep. but I am very happy that this is the ending for Laszlo and Sarai. Yeah. We're definitely going to read Daughter of Smoke and Bone at some point, because I have no idea what it's about, and people always say, like, if you like Strange Dreamer, you should read this. So, Geordie, yes. bring this sort of more to a close. Right. As someone who's read the books before, yes. on this reread, and the duology, what are your thoughts? I think it's the more exciting of the two. I enjoy a lot of the, the general character interactions, but I don't think it is as tight a story as um, Stranger Dreamer 1, which I think is basically perfect. I wouldn't consider this book perfect. I would consider it... um. Uh, I would say it has some slight inconsistencies in its plot. Not that it like, gets things wrong, but like a couple of pacing issues, a couple of characters who don't need to be where they are. 
not perfect in the same way that I think Strange Virginia is basically perfect. I fully agree. Mm-hmm. I do feel this way, particularly the pacing issues, um, brought it back slightly uh, from Strange Virginia. It, I think it's inherent, it might not actually be inherent, but the establishing of the, of the mystery box is mm-hmm. often far more fun than whatever you can possibly reveal. Not saying that the anti doesn't do a great job mm-hmm. of the reveals, but it's almost more fun with mysteries. Yeah. I would say this, I would recommend Shane Tajima to pretty much any fantasy fan I, I know. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't necessarily recommend Muse of Nightmares on it as an entity to every fantasy fan I know, but I can't imagine a single no, person yeah. reading Strange the Dreamer yeah. and then not wanting to read Muse of Nightmares. That's true. And it is a great conclusion. Like, um, it really delivers on everything that's that it's... And the mysteries continue. I think it's literally at the start of the, of the final part that um, they have this, they start, uh, Lenny Ted starts a chapter by saying, okay, here's the mystery, it's solved now, and they lay it out, and you, it's so huge in comparison to where you started, that you're like, it's incredible, what a big swing you took here, where the journey we've gone on to get to this, this massive revelation, and it's nailed, so many people would completely screw it up at this point, but you did this amazingly. I would love to know now, as both of you and me are kind of in agreement over these two books, mm-hmm. you know, with Strange the Dreamer being absolute wonder, Muse of Nightmares a fantastic follow-up, even if not quite at the same level. Mm-hmm. I would love to know if there are people out there who felt it was the other way around. I'm sure there are. Like, if someone was really bored by Strange Dreamers, like, there's not enough exciting stuff. The last part of this book is really exciting. Yeah, I can see that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I definitely see the the upping sort of the the balance the scales between sort of the more romantic points and the more action points um, in Muse of Nightmares has definitely mm-hmm. tilted. So I think that's room there. Whereas I couldn't imagine someone hating Shades of Dreamer. Um, I'm sure they exist as well, and I'd love to hear from them. Um, I definitely feel I can see where someone might enjoy Muse of Nightmares more. Yes, we'd love even to hear if from we you. Do. Uh, what's our email, Duncan? Our email is if it's just a fantasy at gmail.com. Okay, thank you, Duncan. That was very helpful. Please send us messages there with your thoughts on Strange the Dreamer and the Muse of Nightmares. Before we wrap up, I have two things I want to say, one of which you're going to be mad at me for. The first one is, uh, I think this is just really amusing, which is that um, I made my one of my ex-girlfriends read this book. She loves fantasy. She read Strange Dreamer. She couldn't wait to read Muse of Nightmares. She read Muse of Nightmares. And when she finished it, she mentioned me and says, like, I can tell how much of this book influenced you. And I went, I don't get it. And she said, well, the story of this book, like the plot twist in particular, it's almost the exact same as your book. And I went, oh, my God, you're right. <laughs> it is. This is this is my book. This is my novel. One of the twists is like almost word, like detail by detail, the exact same. Um which was a harrowing moment of like, I'm not an original. It's don't worry, none of us are. Okay, thank you, Duncan. Um, and the second point I'm going to make is one more slight criticism, uh, which I think makes it, puts it below Strange Duma, and it's kind of a big one. I don't think Laszlo and Sarai's relationship is as interesting in this book. No, I don't think, it's not as interesting as in Often with romance, I think this the whole genre speaks to this. It's more interesting seeing people get together than be together. 
that's not quite where I'm at here because oh. I much say I do like some of the scenes where they are together. I just think it's a little too sweet sometimes. I chalk that up to them still, relatively speaking, being in the kind of honeymoon period. Yeah. They've actually still only known each other for about a month. Oh, not even that. It's like two weeks. Yeah, but I can definitely see that. So, Jordi, onwards and... I'm about to say upwards. Just onwards. Mm-hmm. What would you yeah, like Yeah, us- we, we can't say upwards because uh, I'm. it's my turn to pick the book. You picked Muse and Nightmares. You wanted to close the duology. And I told you before we started this recording that I have no idea what the next book is like. Because I've already chosen it. This is a book I bought completely on a whim. I saw the title, I read the blurb, and I went, this is... This sounds like it's gonna be really stupid. This sounds really goth and edgy, and it could be a big fun hit, or it could be an absolute eye-roll slog. And that book is... Empire of the Vampire. Uh, I got it on Audible, and now since then I've had to buy the uh, the book, because it turns out it's full of illustrations, which I didn't realize. And um, that is the next book we're going to read. Some it's, it's about vampires. It's about slaying vampires. I'm I love so slaying excited vampires. to see where this falls on that the spectrum of your Blood Rain, your Blade, your Twilight, your Dracula. Mm-hmm. I'm so excited to see where this comes in. Okie dokie. So yeah, we're going to get stuck into the book Empire of the Vampire, now in hardback at the time of this recording. <sighs> okay, that's been another episode of Is This Just Fantasy? I've been your host, Geordie Bailey. And I'm the other guy, Duncan Nickel. See you later, Ron. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, everyone. Uh, Geordie here. We Forget about Empire of the Vampire. Who cares about Empire of the Vampire? Not me. I don't. I don't care. Do you, Duncan? Yeah, I, I, me neither. George. I, I don't care about Empire the Vampire. I mean, what? You know, it's yeah, it's, a, it's a book, but you know, it's not like we would record an episode. It's, it's not like imagine if we spent two weeks reading that seven hundred page monstrosity and had a very engaging conversation about it. Something which you agreed was definitely our best episode yet. And then we lost the audio I mean, for that it. That would just be stupid. Imagine if we'd done that or like, I just didn't record for some reason and your audio got corrupted. That would just yeah, be Yeah, that would be really stupid. And imagine like, if we were like, okay, well, sure, we lost like 20 minutes of audio, but I guess Duncan could just like dub over. All we have to do is give him Geordie's audio. And then you pu- and then I put it into the uh, sound engineering program and it just did not load. And we had no idea why. That would be ridiculous. Mate, that, that just could never happen. That would just be a, such a stupid idea. And to make sure it doesn't happen, well, let's do a different book. Yes. Good idea. Yeah, yeah, I'm... yeah. And since it was my idea, but since it was such a stupid idea to even consider it, uh, that counts as me picking an episode, and it's your turn to pick an episode, Duncan. That that seems fair to me. So we're going to do Elric of Malibone for a load of reasons which we would have explained if we had done Empire of the Vampire, but you know what? We didn't. We didn't. Elric Malibone by Michael Moorcock. See you in two weeks, guys. Love to hear your thoughts about it. Yep. I can't believe we made this fucking episode longer. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Bye! Bye! <laughs>